0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation.
1: Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Byte Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this BiteSize Size Bio web seminar which today is sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. Thermo Fisher Scientific leads the life sciences industry in single particle analysis workflow solutions, offering a comprehensive range of hardware and software. The solution provided guarantees exceptional throughput and superb data quality, leading to greater scientific insight and quicker understanding of the scientific question. Today's presentation is titled, Cryoelectron Microscopy and the Complexity of Cancer and is being presented by Dr. Simon Popsel from the University of California at Berkeley. Simon attained his bachelor's in science in medical biology from the University of Duisburg-Essen, Germany in 2008. As a graduate student in the laboratory of Michael Ehrman, he studied the biochemistry of protein quality control, specifically the disintegration and proteolysis of pathological tau aggregates by the serine protease HTRA-1. For his postdoctoral research, Simon joined the group of Eva Nogales at the University of California at Berkeley in 2015. Using cryo-electron microscopy, he has been characterizing the structure of the human epigenetic regulator polycomb-repressive complex 2, or PRC-2, and its regulatory interactions with various chromatin substrates, In the summer of 2019, Simon will be moving back to Germany to establish an independent research group at the Center for Molecular Medicine in Cologne. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Simon at the end. And the recording of the webinar will be available within the next 24 to 48 hours at bit.ly slash cryoemcancerwebinar, that's bit.ly slash cryo em cancer webinar so now over to you simon for the presentation
0: okay hi everybody Um, welcome also uh, from me to this webinar Uh, thank you all for joining thank you amanda for this very kind introduction Um, and i'm very excited to give this webinar it's the first webinar i'm giving and uh, i'm going to talk about uh, two very interesting topics that i've been occupied in the laboratory of Evan Ugalis at UC Berkeley, that's cryo-electro-microscopy and cancer biology. And I'm going to start by giving you a brief outline of what my talk is going to be about. Um, and the two topics are very broad. You could spend hours and hours talking about these, so I'll only be able to scratch the surface. So what I'm going to try to do is give you an overview and try to point out what I think are the essential aspects of uh, cancer biology, the search for cures for cancer, why it is so hard to find cures, and then also what cryoelectromicroscopy is and what it can do uh, in our search uh, for new cures in our uh, understanding of cancer biology. So first of all I will start with an outline of uh, uh, cancer research, cancer biology, then I'm going to talk about the structural biology, uh, what it is and what its role in cancer research is, has been and can be. Um, then I'm going to talk in a little more detail about uh, cryolatron microscopy, the principles and um, the procedures that we use to solve structures of biomolecules, and um, then uh, finish this part by pointing out some uh, cryom studies, uh, especially from our lab, that have contributed to cancer research in recent years. And I'll finish with uh, a few remarks on future perspectives uh, to give you an idea of uh, what cryem can potentially do in the future and what should or has to be done in the future to make cry more available and more even more powerful in cancer research. So to begin with, um, I'd like to uh, uh, talk about the question why there still isn't a cure for all cancer, um, which is an obvious question because uh, cancer is such a a terrible uh, disease affecting so many people um, and causing so many deaths. Uh, so many deaths. And um, I think there is two essential aspects uh, to this question uh, that help answering that question. Uh, first of all, uh, the basic uh, feature that defines cancer as a disease is that it is a disease uh, that uh, that involves the uncontrolled and invasive proliferation of cells in an organism. and This eventually leads to compromised tissue function, tissue homeostasis, the loss of tissue function, and may eventually lead to the death of the organism. So the two aspects that are very important in understanding why it is so hard for us to find cures against cancer is, first of all, the cells that we're talking about, the cancer cells, are essentially our own body cells. So it's not a foreign agent like a virus or bacterium that enters the body and can be fought by distinguishing it from our own body cells. And then secondly, proliferation itself is a normal process, so we cannot easily target proliferation as a process um, to fight cancer cells. And uh, that makes it much more difficult to find cures that does not, that do not harm our own body cells as well. The other aspect is the complexity of cancer. So the ori- the origin of cancer cells is highly diverse. Cancer cells can originate from uh, basically any tissue of the body. And uh, in addition to that, cancer cells within a tumor are very diverse as well. And they evolve, especially during therapy where there's selective pressure. Uh, cancer cells change their properties and may escape therapy um, and, and make the therapy that's being used um, basically lose its effect. So these are two aspects that, that make it clear that what we do in cancer research, and what our mission is, is to understand as much as possible about cancer, and about the processes that define cancer, in order to find new ways of preventing and curing cancer. So, As I already pointed out, cancer has many phases, many aspects. It's a highly complex disease. The most basic feature of it is an imbalance of the normal process of cell growth and cell division, cell proliferation, on the one hand and on the other hand cell death mechanisms. In in the year 2000, about 20 years ago, Hennan and Weinberg started out a systematic approach trying to break down the features of cancer cells to give us a better and a more systematic idea about what the processes are that define cancer and that uh, define cancer cells and they came up with six defining features or cancer hallmarks and that paper became a classic that was cited ten thousands of times. And um, as you can see from these six hallmarks, um, many of them uh, uh, do also describe this imbalance between cell growth and cell death mechanisms, um, pointing out the supply of cancer cells with nutrients at, uh, by inducing angiogenesis, and the signaling events that are important for inducing cell growth or inhibited um, uh, or evading growth suppression, and on the other side, cell death mechanisms would do, which do not work properly in cancer cells and uh, basically protect cancer cells from uh, from dying. And, of course, uh, metastasis and invasion of other tissues is also an important aspect that has to be considered uh, when we want to describe cancer and we want to uh, describe what makes uh, cancer a disease. So, uh, over the years, it became clear that this division into six hallmarks is not the whole truth, and it is actually much more complex than that, and we have to consider more processes. Um, So, Hannah and Weinberg updated uh, their view and added more features to it that would help to uh, to incorporate more processes that are relevant for cancer research. Especially, it became clear that we have to consider the direct tissue environment of cancer cells, um, including other cells, normal body cells as well, that create a tumor environment, and also look at uh, the immune system and how cancer cells interact with the u- immune system. So you see on the left now, Uh, the updated uh, um, cancer hallmarks that include uh, the avoidance of immune destruction by cancer cells, uh, the role that tumor-promoting inflammation inflammation plays in cancer biology, and other aspects such as genome instability, which is important in cancer formation. So basically, what I'm trying to point out here is that there is a very long list that we're working on in cancer research. It's a highly complex disease. And and we have to understand a lot of different processes in order to give a uh, give us a full and complete view of the disease uh, process in order to find ways to cure the disease. And what also becomes clear is that it's it is a cell based disease. It is a disorder of cells dividing endlessly, but at the same time. Um, It is also a disease that takes place on all levels of biological organization. So for a full understanding of cancer biology, we have to take into account higher orders of organization, the tissue in which cancer uh, growth, in which a tumor growth, um, the full organism as well. Then on the other side of the spectrum um, it is of course very important to also look at the interactions of molecules within signaling pathway, the interactions of cells with their environment through receptors, and uh, what signaling pathways are then activated uh, to, to promote the growth of cancer cells, uh, what promotes changes in gene expression patterns uh, that lead to increases uh, in proliferation rates and, and all these mechanisms that have been uh, pointed out by Hannan and Weinberg. And if we go to the uh, smallest scale of biological organization, um, there comes structural biology, uh, looking at individual biomolecules, proteins and nucleic, nucleic acids in particular, uh, how they interact, how they form complexes and what their three-dimensional structure is, in order to give us an idea about how they function. So we have to consider all these levels. Not a single approach will give us a full idea of cancer and uh, will, a, will not be sufficient uh, to To give us a better and fuller idea of the disease process in structural biology we 're interested in determining the three dimensional structure of biological macromolecules and the complexes involving individual macromolecules and by doing that, we want to understand better the activities, the interactions um, and their function within a full biological system as the molecular basis of all processes of a cell for life processes. So, basically the foundation for that idea in a philo- philosophical sense was laid by René uh, Descartes, who started describing larger systems such as living uh, living organisms as being defined through the interactions of their small parts that constitute them. And very similarly in structural biology, we are trying to define as much as we can the fine structure of single parts of a larger system, similar to what you would uh, what you would see here on the right as as the uh, components of a of a machine. <coughs> we want to understand the fine structure of each of the uh, constituent parts, each each of the molecules in our sense. Um, how they look like, how they are structured in, in three dimensions, how they interact with each other. And by these means, first of all, better understand how the system works, what the role of individual parts in the system is, and then also point out what ways there are to influence the system and prevent malfunction of the system. In this case, what we're talking about here, to understand how single parts, how single molecules and complexes contribute to cancer uh, development and how we can influence them uh, to prevent cancer formation and kill cancer cells. So the role of structural biology in cancer research is basically twofold. There's two basic and main fields of interests uh, that structural biology has in cancer research. First of all, it's basic research, which mostly takes place in academia, asking the question, how does a certain process work? How does a certain enzyme work? How does it, is regulated? How, it is, how is it targeted to the right place in the cell? And so on and so on. And how is that related to processes that are relevant for cancer? How does a normal function of a protein or protein complex lead, uh, lead to the prevention of cancer? Or how its malfunction may uh, lead to cancer eventually? So examples are genetic regulators uh, that can contribute to abnormal gene expression in cancer or DNA repair mechanisms that if they fail uh, lead to to malfunction of proteins and increases in proliferation rates uh, potentially. On the other side uh, there's drug discovery which is also done in academia but especially uh, promoted by pharmaceutical industry of course asking the question how can we intervene with these processes. So in structural biology looking at potential targets uh, that can be influenced by small molecules that will be used as drugs in order to intervene with cancer progression, uh, in order to kill cancer cells, and examples for that are enzyme inhibitors or activators uh, that influence a certain pathway in a way that a cancer cell cannot grow anymore or will die, or receptor blockers or agonists that uh, may help, for example, the immune system to clear cancer cells and fight uh, fight cancer cells that way. So it's that two-fold role that I'm going to talk about uh, in, the, in the following slides as well. In structural biology, we have three major methods uh, that we use in order to determine the three-dimensional structure of molecules, which are NMR spectroscopy, X-ray crystallography, and cryo electron microscopy Each of these three methods has their own strengths and their own weaknesses as well. I will not uh, go into detail of those strengths and weaknesses, but instead will focus mostly on uh, cryo microscopy here. And uh, in the following slides, I'd like to point out the strengths of cryo-EM and why I think it's such a powerful technique and why it allows uh, so many insights that had not been possible before. And also, uh, as you can see here on the bottom, the limitations that I pointed out, I put that 10 years ago uh, in front of that, uh, because these limitations uh, turn out uh, to not hold true anymore because of some important developments that I'm also going to mention here. So why use cryEM uh, in order to un- to answer that question, I will start with some of the basics of uh, uh, single particle electron microscopy. So we are working uh, with transmission electron microscopes <coughs> which um, in their uh, in their scheme uh, look similar to a light microscope. But, of course, we're not working with uh, light, but with an electron beam that's generated on top of what we call the column. Um, And this electron beam is then manipulated uh, by means of a lens system that can be described analogously to a light microscope. Uh, The electron beam then passes through the sample. That's why it's called transmission electron microscopy. And when passing through the sample, it interacts with the molecules within the sample, including our biomolecules of interest, uh, where they, the electrons are scattered, and the image uh, is eventually generated through uh, through these uh, scattering events. Now the microscopes look somewhat like this, uh, so this is a high-end microscope, um, which is a little bit older, where you can see actually the column and me sitting next to it, and these days. Uh, they look a little bit less intimidating because they're inside a box, but basically what you can see on the left is still inside this box. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. In single particle cryo uh, we start with a very small volume of sample, which is also one of the advantages. We need very little sample at relatively low concentration. And uh, it begins of course with the isolation and purification of the protein, which I'm not showing here, or the complex. And um, the actual cryo process starts with applying the sample to a small uh, copper plate that's called the grid, that has tiny holes in it. And in the following, most of the samples actually blotted away so that we create a very thin film uh, that ideally has a single layer of the biomolecules of interest um, spanning the holes. And this thinned sample is then very quickly, rapidly plunged into very cold liquid ethane. And This quick plunging method guarantees that we form something that's called vitreous ice. Vitreous ice is not crystalline. It has a glass-like state so that the molecules are trapped in a state that is uh, uh, identical to what they are. In solution but it is frozen and it, that prevents the formation of ice crystals and the problems that are accompanied by ice crystal formation and at the same time helps to keep the molecules intact in the high vacuum that's present inside the column where the sample is hit by the electron beam. What you see here on the bottom is uh, a very old apparatus uh, showing a tweezer holding that uh, grid that's going to be plunged into that little bucket uh, of liquid ethane here which is one of the first plunging instruments uh, that had been developed and essentially the instruments do not look very much different today. In principle they are the same but look a little more fancy these days. When we put the sample into the electron microscope we shine an electron beam onto that thin layer of the biomolecules and then the data that we record are images of what we call micrographs that contain two-dimensional projections of the three-dimensional objects inside the sample and each of these images will contain tens or hundreds of individual particle images. We use thousands of these large images to then box out individual particle images and this is then the raw data that we're going to work with uh, which consists of hundreds of thousands if not millions of single particle images. In our image processing pipeline, we classify these images, we group them together uh, in order to eliminate eliminate noise and sort out the signal that comes from the biomolecules of interest and then in the 3D reconstruction pipeline basically what we do in principle is we use the two-dimensional projections to calculate back the three-dimensional object and its shape uh, based on the angles that are needed uh, to to, re, uh, to recalculate this Two dimensional projections into a three dimensional object. So, this is a highly simplified um, uh, view of what we're doing, but essentially, it, it is possible by these means to point out one of the big strengths of cryo electron microscopy, and that is based on the fact that we're looking at populations of single molecules or complexes. And that helps us to not only deal with the heterogeneity and flexibility of complexes uh, but also exploit this heterogeneity uh, by interpreting it in terms of uh, the flexibilities that biomolecules have because biomolecules are not rocks if they were rocks they were they would be dead, uh, so in order to function, they have to move, they have to be uh, flexible in and cry and we're able to interpret this flexibility and then try to make sense of it, how this flexibility and movement uh, contributes to biological function. So a few things to how cryam has become so popular and so powerful in recent years. So there's two major developments that I would like to point out in the last 10 years that have played an important role in that. So one challenge in cryam is that we're working with a very low dose uh, because uh, our biomolecules are sensitive to uh, radiation damage by, by the electron beam, and that leads to low contrast. So cryo-EM data is very noisy. If, with, for raw data, sometimes it's very hard to even see your particles. And secondly, the molecules, once they are being hit by an electron beam, they start to move a little bit, e- even though they are frozen in the ice. And uh, that creates a problem um, because the images become blurry. And The solution to that um, was when a few years ago, uh, new and very powerful cameras um, having direct electron detectors that can count single electrons in a very efficient manner um, came onto the market, and that increased the sensitivity drastically. These cameras are very quick, and what we actually do these days is we collect movies instead of single images uh, that consist of uh, many image frames, uh, 30 to 50 image frames, let's say, and uh, uh, what we can do then is motion correction and correct for this beam-induced motion. So you see on the left uh, just a sum of the individual frame images that was published in, in, in the f- the first paper describing this uh, motion correction, where you can see that the particles, in this case it's large virus particles, uh, look, look very uh, blurry, Uh, because of that motion, and then if we correct for that uh, beam-induced motion um, doing that motion correction, you see that the images are much more crisp, you can see much more details, and that helps uh, dramatically for resolving structures to very high resolution. The second challenge that I'd like to point out is that image processing, as you can imagine, we're working with uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of individual particle images, it's computationally very intense. And the solution to this uh, problem was the uh, making algorithms much more efficient, uh, and also the use of graphics cards as powerful parallel computing units um, helped us to now process these large data sets in a much uh, better and much much faster manner, and uh, helping us to sort at different states. Uh, within a population of molecules and and learn more about these molecules. And also, of course, the microscopes are much better these days and image acquisition schemes help us to reliably um, collect thousands of micrographs uh, within a few days to to reconstruct our structures. So, how has CryM become so popular? I think I gave uh, a few answers at least. And uh, these improvements have helped us to overcome these barriers or these limitations that I mentioned before. Uh, No longer are we limited by resolution, uh, so we're not longer looking at potatoes that have uh, little features, but instead we can solve the structures to very high resolution, to near atomic resolution that allows us to build atomic models and look at very fine details of molecular interactions and by these means, learn much more about the molecular function and regulation of biomolecules. And also, we are not no longer that much limited by by the size of molecules. We don't need really big particles as we, as we used to uh, be limited to. But we can also look at smaller uh, molecules and solve these structures to high resolution as well. So this has made cryoEM a very very powerful tool in recent years, and has led to the uh, gain in popularity of, uh, of cryo-electron microscopy. So in the next few slides I would like to point out a few uh, insights that have been possible because of uh, cryem that wouldn't have been possible uh, without these advantages that I pointed out. First, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, polycomb repressive complex two, uh, the complex that I'm also working on in Eva's lab that leads to epigenetic silencing uh, during development and differentiation through its histone methotransferase activity. And uh, I will not go into too much detail here, just point out uh, why it is important for cancer development. uh, It's uh, uh, most likely important because of its effect on gene expression patterns, um, which can contribute uh, to proliferative signaling de-differentiation of cancer cells, and then also lead have an, an effect on invasion and metastasis. And in fact, uh, several cancer types uh, show uh, changes in the function of PRC2 subunits uh, by gain of function or loss of function mutations. And there are even inhibitors in clinical trials targeting ECH2, the catalytic subunit of PRC2. So my colleague uh, Vignesh uh, Kazinath was able to use cryo to solve the structure of the full human complex, including all essential subunits of the complex, which had not been possible before, probably due to the flexibility of the complex. And he was able to build an almost complete atomic model of the full complex, allowing us to draw conclusions about the full architecture and the detailed interactions that lead to the full activity of the complex and the role of individual subunits. In my own project, I was concerned with how PRC2 engages with chromatin, how it recognizes nucleosomes. And especially I was, um, I was uh, concerned with a regulatory mechanism that enables PRC2 to be activated by the recognition of its own catalytic product, the trimethylated H3K27 residue that had long been proposed to be the basis of a spreading mechanism of this repressive mark across chromatin, where a nucleosome that would be uh, trimethylated already can bind PRC2 and the catalytic subunit would be able to bind a neighboring nucleosome that's a substrate nucleosome and then be activated to modify the next nucleosome and so on and so on. So I was lucky to get a um, very interesting structure that immediately showed how PRC2 interacts both with the substrate nucleosome on one side, very close to the active site, and the modified nucleosome that serves as an endosteric activator on the other side. And uh, this flexible complex, there's no way it uh, would have been able to be crystallized um, and we were able to directly show how PRC2 recognizes uh, nucleosomes and how this activation mechanism can take in the can take place in the context of chromatin. And I mentioned that we can analyze flexibilities. And as a quick example, looking at this modified nucleosome, we were able to show that within the particle population that we used as the data um, for generating this uh, this this map. Uh, we see a large flexibility of this modified nucleosome and that makes sense because PRC2 has has to be able to act within diverse chromatin contexts which are not always very well defined so it also makes sense that if we change the length of the linker DNA connecting the two nucleosomes the modified and the unmodified nucleosome, uh, there is a dramatic change because of the changed geometry of the linker DNA, and we see that PRC2, depending on the linker length, can engage with one or the other H3 copy that's present in that modified nucleosome. And, and these kinds of analyses um, are, are only possible because of, of the, of the um, potential that we have in CRYAM to analyze populations of, uh, of particles. <clears throat> So, we were able to show chromatin-based activation and uh, spreading by cryEM, and uh, the flexibility that, that uh, lays the foundation for PSU2 function in the context of chromatin. Uh, the other example that I would like to show from our lab uh, is concerned with uh, the general transcription factor 2H um, that is important for the initiation of transcription, uh, where uh, Evas' lab uh, uh, Yuan He from Everslab in 2013 published uh, a paper showing the sequential addition of large complexes to form that super complex called pre-initiation complex that has to be assembled at the promoter of genes before starting the transcription. And TF2H is a factor, a complex that is assembled as a last step. It has DNA helicase and kinase activity and through these functions um, is essential for the initiation of transcription. It has another function as well, and that is uh, in DNA damage repair, uh, where um, in cancer uh, it may be very important uh, to prevent genome instability and mutations that accumulate. And indeed, there are a lot of mutations that are known that lead to genetic disorders in humans that uh, uh, coincide with, a, uh, with an increased uh, chance of, uh, of the patients getting cancer and it has not been explored as a a therapeutic target yet, to my knowledge. And my colleague, Basel Gréber, has been working on this complex uh, for a couple of years now, and he came up uh, with a very uh, very exciting and a fantastic structure of the core complex of Tf2h, explaining how these uh, subunits interact with, at, at really atomic detail, he could build a full atomic model of that core complex, And Interestingly, he used state-of-the-art image processing and was able to figure out the flexibilities and motions of parts of this complex and uh, could explain uh, and point to uh, potential roles that these motions may have uh, and and point point to regulatory and structural interactions of individual subunits such as P62, which winds around the whole complex and plays numerous numerous roles uh, in that complex. And he also was able to show how individual disease mutations uh, are positioned within the complex. And one of the very fascinating aspects of uh, Basel's work is that he works with a complex that was not overexpressed at all. It's the endogenous complex from cultured human cells, and you can only get tiny amounts of that. And still it was possible for him to solve that structure to atomic detail, which uh, is, is I still find it very fascinating how, how that is possible. And that's because cryem needs so little sample, and uh, with the right uh, expertise you can uh, you can you can solve these kinds of exciting structures with cryem. Uh, the third example from our lab is the telomerase enzyme complex, um, which is uh, very famous because it maintains uh, chromosome ends it adds pieces of DNA to the ends of chromosomes and by these means helps the sh- the replication dependent shrinking of chromosome arms and protects the chromosomes uh, from becoming instable and and accumulating uh, chromosomal uh, failures. And uh, this is an important aspect in these hallmarks of cancer because increased telomerase activity is found in many cancers and the overexpression of uh, um, telomerase enables uh, cells to basically divide uh, indefinitely. So this whole enzyme complex is very hard uh, to purify. And in fact, for for the human uh, telomerase, there was a lot of debate uh, which subunits assemble into the catalytically active enzyme complex. And it also contains uh, uh, RNA as well as protein uh, complexes, which doesn't make it easier to reconstitute that complex. And Kelly Nguyen uh, from Eva's lab, um, she was able to use tissue culture, uh, in order to to uh, obtain enough amounts of the telomerase complex, and she really made a breakthrough in the biology of uh, telomerase by defining the human telomerase complex, uh, showing what the stoichiometry and the location of the individual subunits is, and then uh, draw conclusions about the roles of the RNA and protein constituents uh, um, in the activity of telomerase so this Again, it's a very low-abundant uh, complex that had not been uh, known for decades even though people had, were very much interested in solving the structure of this complex and uh, still it was possible now to define this complex, which is uh, amazing work. Uh, it's also because uh, Kelly is such a fantastic biochemist, um, but it was possible now for us by means of cry uh, to solve this structure. What I can only talk very briefly about is that, that CRYM is also um, very powerful in, in uh, solving structures of membrane protein complexes, such as G-protein coupled receptors, uh, which actually contrib- uh, constitute uh, about 30% of all, um, uh, all drugs. And it was shown that uh, it, by and we can look at more uh, functional uh, complexes and assemblies involving G- GPCRs and potentially uh, by these means identify uh, more uh, druggable targets uh, using GPCRs, which are such an important group of um, proteins and receptors. And uh, lastly, I would like to point out that a few years ago, a number of structures uh, came out uh, from uh, Sridhar M. lab, um, showing that cryem can be used to solve structures to high enough resolution to actually visualize small molecules that are bound to um, uh, complexes such as P97, um, so that it, it shows potential to be used in drug discovery uh, eventually to visualize uh, inhibitors and, and show where their binding pockets are. So to sum this up, uh, I think in basic cancer research, cryem will for sure continue to enable really groundbreaking uh, biological insights, and there will be a further and increased stimulation between uh, structural and functional studies as well. M also goes in C2 so I didn't talk about tri-electron tomography at all but there's also a quickly developing uh, field that allows us to look at molecules even in the cellular context which is extremely exciting uh, but what I would also like to point out that cryEM uh, will not uh, become the sole structural biology technique so it's not like a domination of cryEM in that sense because we also Still rely on the other techniques such as NMR and extra crystallography uh, to uh, to lead to very high-resolution details and uh, provide us with uh, models that are very helpful in, in interpreting the cryo densities that we obtain. Uh, challenges uh, are still sample preparation, uh, cryo-EM uh, uh, freezing techniques, and uh, getting the protein complexes uh, to be stable uh, when being uh, frozen which is a big issue Uh, so there is a lot of developments going on at the moment and there will have to be a lot more uh, going on in the future as well. We are accumulating huge amounts of data uh, that have to be managed which is a challenge these days Um, and and, uh, one thing that I would also like to point out that the instrumentation is uh, quite expensive so it has to be uh, there has to be. There have to be ways, and there are becoming more and more ways available uh, to use CRY-M, uh high-end cryem instrumentation, and uh, have your samples analyzed. And uh, one thing that I won't be able to go into detail, but uh, in, uh, as opposed to X-ray crystallography, in cryem. Uh, there's a big uh, debate about uh, uh, a quality measurement and validation criteria for cryo maps, uh, which are still sometimes uh, uh, debatable because uh, the resolution that's reported for a cryo-ma- cryo map does not necessarily always correlate with its quality. Uh, in drug discovery, I think uh, uh, it is definitely possible to gain uh, the resolution that's needed for drug discovery projects, um, but um, there is not necessarily uh, the potential for every target uh, that you can think of. So, pharmaceutical companies have started to invest into cryom. They will continue to do so. Um, And cryom definitely will be very helpful in identifying novel targets for cancer treatment. Um, But the near-atomic resolution that has been shown for some of the complexes is not attainable for every possible complex. So, there's a lot of development that's still uh, needed there to make the standard... Technique that can uh, be used uh, with a very high throughput uh, to to solve a lot of structures because in drug discovery uh, and 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 uh, drug optimization you need to solve a lot of structures in order to to find the right compound that binds best and there's not yet a streamlined procedure for uh, for very quick data acquisition and model building and validation uh, that will need to be established in order to make uh, cryium a very uh, uh, a very useful technique in drug discovery as well. So there's a way to go there as well. Um, so I think uh, in in some cryom can be uh, extremely helpful in many aspects of cancer biology. It's a highly, highly complex disease and there's so many aspects to explore, so many aspects to explore different levels of biological uh, organization. And cry and, um, cryom is just a single step but a very powerful one that can enable us to gain insights that had not been possible before and uh, with this I would like to uh, finish my talk and acknowledge first of all uh, Eva Nogales who is a fantastic mentor and uh, I was really uh, lucky to have her accept me in her lab and uh, work uh, with this amazing group of people and um, uh, share awesome times with them. I would like to thank uh, Bob Glaser who is a pioneer in CryEM who uh, was willing to share his expertise and be my Alexander von Humboldt host. Uh, the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation uh, 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 financed my, uh, part of my stay in Evas Lab. And uh, I'm very happy to take your questions. And uh, I think there will be a lot of them. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Simon. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right hand side of your screen and we'll get them right going. So the first question that we have is, what would you suggest for someone who is interested in solving a structure, say a biochemist, but does not have a microscope? In other words, how do I get a cryo-EM structure if I can't do it myself?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's a, a very good question. I think also a very common question because uh, you know all the people um, who do biochemistry interested in biology, they see a lot of those uh, structures being published and. Um, see the great advantages of CRYAM as well and um, I think so uh, it is there is so far no service where you can just you know send your sample and you get a structure back um, so the best way to do it is uh, through collaborations and um, it is important also to consider that uh, solving a cryom structure Uh, In particular, depending on the sample, um, can involve quite a lot of work in terms of sample optimization and so on and so on. So the first step would be to uh, find someone, find a lab in academia uh, who's maybe working on similar biological questions and then contact them with an initial question of whether they would be interested in uh, working together on a certain uh, topic or project. Um, and then see uh, if there is capacity to work together and, you know, what they think. And typically it is uh, feasible in a, a quite short time to, to get some idea of uh, how good a sample behaves biochemically and things like that. Um, but also um, in most cases um, uh, you should not expect to um, you know, get a structure super quickly um, uh, because it may require some optimization, so be prepared that it uh, can take a while and and also um you know that that cryem labs also uh, have limited capacity to you know uh, uh, to uh, solve structures and work on projects. but if you find someone who's working on a similar problem biologically, I think there's a good chance that you can uh, yeah, that you can you can find collaborators to uh, to work on a complex or a structure that you're interested in, and that's happening a lot of times actually. Yeah.
1: Oh, cool. Um, so now we have a question from Gustav Dagen, and they ask, which methods do you use for protein expression and purification, and how clean does the sample have to be, and how do you deal with impurities?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's a very good question. So in in general you can use any expression system uh, that works for your protein. So what we use typically, because we're working with human proteins, um it is uh, insect cell expression because it's a eukaryotic system and uh, it helps a lot with post-translation modifications and things like that uh, we also work with human cells um, uh, where you get lower yields in general but some of the proteins uh, some of the human complexes can only be expressed in a human system uh, because of uh, uh, the challenges of producing large uh, flexible complexes and, and things like that uh, but of course if your protein is also expressed in bacteria, you can use that as well. So there's in that sense there's no limitation on the cry M side. Uh, it's mostly to get the complex that you need in a sufficient purity. And then the second part of the question was the purity. Um, uh, it is the, the the better the purity of your sample, the more likely it will be that you'll uh have a successful uh, structural project as well. Um, cry M can deal with a certain extent of uh, heterogeneity and impurity in the sample. Um, we can sort out uh, using the image processing techniques uh, a certain amount of particles that are not your particle of interest. And uh, also you know differences in the stoichiometry and composition of the complex and so on and so on. Uh, but it is important to keep in mind that we need to keep that uh, to the minimum uh, so any impurity will make it less likely uh, that you will successfully solve your structure, um, and and it is very important to have a very very uh, good sample to begin with biochemically. Uh, that will increase your chances of uh, of solving the structure um, for sure. So if you have a very bad sample, you can collect millions of micrographs and will not get anywhere. Uh, and um, yeah, as have your sample as pure as it gets and also as functional as it gets. So it's also important to also include uh, functional assays uh, to make sure that what you purify is also functioning the way it should.
1: Great. So now we have a question from Nila and they're asking, could you comment on the relation of flexibility of protein complex to the resolution attainable in cryo-EM? Um,
0: yeah, so... As I also said in the talk, uh, flexibility is uh, is a normal uh, thing in in molecular structures. Um, It has, especially initially in Priam, also been been looked at as a little bit of a pain. You have to deal with that. Um, But nowadays, you can deal with a lot of the flexibilities um, and solving structures and also um, learn something about the function of a complex because you see one part moves relative to the other, uh, you can draw conclusions about what that might play a role in you know, interacting with other interaction partners or DNA and what role that could have in the regulation of the activity of a complex and things like that. Um, in general, um, if you have a very rigid complex that is not very flexible, it does increase your chances of attaining a very high resolution. As soon as you have flexibility, It is more likely that that your resolution will suffer. Uh, That is still the case uh, today. Um, But these days, we can mask out uh, very easily certain complexes and by uh, certain parts of the complex. And by masking out, I mean uh, in our uh, image alignment procedure, in our reconstruction procedure, we can basically just focus on a certain part, maybe one-third or even less uh, of a a full complex. Uh, Just ignore the rest that may be flexible. And then the part that's in itself more rigid uh, can be solved to much higher resolution. Um, And then we can look at the different part that we didn't look at before, solve that independently. And that way uh, you can greatly increase the resolution of the single parts as compared to what you would get uh, looking at the whole complex um, and in terms of numbers it is you cannot you know i it's not possible to say you're generally limited to this or that resolution um, uh, you're certainly limited in a little way in terms of uh, um, uh, how the overall resolution will be uh, in the end that you can uh, that you can obtain. Um, but we have, we have ways to uh, to deal with a lot of flexibility. Well, th- what I talked about here is maybe what you could call on-block flexibility. So you have different parts moving relative to each other, which are in themselves rigid, right? So you basically have uh, blocks which move relative to each other, to, to uh, say it in a very simplistic way. Um, that is something that can be fairly easily dealt with. There's a different kind of flexibility that, you know, uh, starts to um, uh, be something like disorder, right? So if you have uh, a lot of flexibility within small parts of a complex, that will drastically limit your uh, resolution because then you will not have a consensus structure that your refinement uh, can uh, can easily converge on, right? So, so there's... Uh, the The finer flexibilities are more difficult to uh sort out because um, uh, um because you know that doesn't give a, give you the uh, uh the uh, confidence or the um yeah, the signal um to to sort that out um, but uh, yeah still a lot of uh, a lot of the three d reconstruction procedures also um, uh, consider uh, local. Uh, refinement and, and and we can we can work with a lot of that uh, but we as I said in the beginning it's not uh, it's not like a flexible complex will is comparable to something that's completely rigid so flexibility will to some extent uh, um, dampen the resolution a little bit um, but uh, yeah, we can still work around
1: okay great and then Reed Shelby um, asks, "What is the current size limit? So, what is the smallest protein size that could be resolved with cryo cryoEM?" Um,
0: yeah, so I think uh, so. People have been trying to push uh, that limit. Um, I don't know exactly. I think it's uh, maybe so fifty to hundred kilodalton uh, is is on the lower end of what what can be what can be solved these days. Um, but if you go, you know, if you go to uh, somewhere closer to 50 kilodons, this is uh, from uh, people, you know, to, uh, trying to push push that limit. So on a uh, on a normal uh, scale or for uh, for normal labs we are not, you know, uh, working on this uh, method development side of things, it's not a standard size that we work with. So typically. Uh, with uh, you know the modern developments, uh, also for example using face plate technology and things like that, um, uh, complexes around one hundred to one hundred fifty kilodaltons should not be a problem in terms of their size. Um, in general, what we uh, well, what we what we are confronted with when working with small samples is um, the low contrast or the low signal that we get from uh, from these uh, small complexes and um, and there are ways to deal with that. And um, it's becoming more and more easy to uh, to work with smaller samples as well. Um, but it is still easier to work with bigger samples rather than smaller samples. But if you have something that's 100, 150 kilodaltons in size, uh, it is uh, definitely uh, possible to, uh, to solve the structure of that sample.
1: Now we have a question from Sarah. She says, based on your expertise, do you think that negative staining is a mandatory step before going to vitrification?
0: Um, Yeah, so uh, negative staining, um, for those who are not familiar uh, with that, it it does not involve uh, freezing of the sample. In negative staining, we're working at room temperature. um, And we basically, we we dry the sample in the presence of a um, heavy metal stain, and um, in that case, the contrast that, w- that is generated uh, comes from uh, normal normally it's urinal salts that surround uh, your dry uh, protein complex and gives much more contrast than the protein itself. That's why your protein looks uh, uh, bright and, and um, the stain is dark. That's why it's called negative stain. So um, negative staining is a technique that's very, uh, that can be done very quickly. Um, it's a matter of uh, you know minutes to prepare a sample. You can just quickly put it in the microscope and then see uh, very quickly what what you look at. The limits are uh, definitely the resolution. So you're limited to something like fifteen or twenty angstroms. Uh, um, you can learn something about the architecture of a complex, uh, but it's not uh, possible. Uh, it's not um, you cannot use it for high resolution structure solving and um now the question um is uh do we even need that these days now that cry-EM can solve structures to such high resolution and um there are indeed uh, labs that i know of that do not do negative stain uh, anymore at all um, uh, we still do it in the lab and i think it's still a very helpful uh technique um to get a first idea of what your sample looks like uh, so, for example, thinking about the uh, question that, that uh, um, was asked previously, um, if you want to know how uh, homogeneous is your sample, um, how stable is your complex, because maybe on a SDS page you see, oh, all the components are there. And in negative stain it'll only take half an hour or so to see, well, it's actually not my full complex, but it's, you know, it falls apart in many different parts. and. Um, and so it's it's a very good uh, uh, measurement, and, and you can get a very good idea about um, the composition or, or the size of your complex, the uh, uh, homogeneity and the, the um, distribution of uh, particles in your sample. So in that sense, I think it's, it's, uh, it's still very helpful, and you can also get an, an initial idea of flexibilities as well. So we do also um, uh, especially do... Uh, uh, 2D alignments with negative stain data, and then you can get an idea of um, how your sample is um, is arranged in terms of what the domains are relative to each other, um, how much movement there is. Uh, you can also assess that using negative stain. Um, that's all things that make it uh, very helpful. I think one of the reasons why people, why uh, some labs don't do negative stain that much anymore is that the step from negative stain into cryo-EM uh, can be a very difficult one um, because freezing your sample for cryo-electro microscopy um, poses different challenges or uh, um, can lead to different problems in terms of the stability of your complex. So something that looks very nice in negative stain and people doing cryo will uh, know that does not necessarily um, look very nice and cry um, uh, at least not when you just simply put it on a grid. And one of the reasons for that is, uh, as I mentioned, we have a very, very thin film of sample uh, that is eventually frozen in the liquid ethane. And the uh, uh, the thinness of the sample leads to a very high surface-to-volume uh, ratio. So we have a large surface, and that surface is the air-water interface, uh, which is hydrophobic in nature. And, Biomolecules tend to um, unfold or uh, or denature at the air-water interface. And that is something that that your sample does not experience when you do negative stain. Um, So it might look very nice and happy in negative stain, then when you freeze it, it It's possible that it looks uh, horrible and that you need to do a lot of optimization to get it into cryo-EM. So there's more challenges in cryo-EM that are not there in negative stain. Um, And so that's why I think some researchers say uh, I'll just skip the negative stain step because if I don't get it to work into cryo, uh, you know, what's the point of doing negative stain? And uh, I think there is reasons to do negative stain still. Uh, It's not mandatory, so you don't have to do it. Uh, You can go straight into cryo, um, but um, uh, sample optimization in in cryo EM uh, can be, and is normally much more uh, involved. So uh, if you want to quickly assess the quality of your sample, the the purity of your sample, um, uh, I would definitely recommend uh, doing negative stain first and um, then start uh, doing, doing uh am sample freezing and sample preparation. Um, yeah, that's, that's my uh, personal recommendation. But yeah, other people think differently, but I think that's how we commonly do it here in the lab.
1: Well, I think that brings us to the end of the webinar. So thank you again, Simon, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. Yes. Thank you. And thank you also to our sponsor, Thermo Fisher. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. And there, you can see the other webinars we have lined up for you on Bite Size Bio, including Thermo Fisher's next webinar in this series. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Thermo Fisher and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com webinars.
0: Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression, with short, easy-to-access episodes you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.